0: Harvard Divinity School. The Climate of Grief, October 25th, 2021. My name is Terry Tempest Williams, and I'm the writer in residence at the Harvard Divinity School. And on behalf of the Center for the Study of World Religions, Religion and Public Life, Planetary Health Alliance, in partnership with the Constellation Project, we welcome you. Gathering my thoughts, Brian Kerbis calms us once again with his tea pouring. And that feels essential tonight as we move to deepen our relationship to our ancestors and grief. Grief dares us to love once more. Grief is love. That has been my mantra for years. Alongside a grief shared is a grief endured. And tonight, the extraordinary poet, Victoria Chang, explores this landscape of grief And like all of us, it is both a personal grief and a collective grief at once. We are still in the midst of this global pandemic with close to 5 million of us dead. Most of them died alone, with their families still grieving, holding the life stories of their loved ones close. We can't forget that. Again, we thought this was a pause, It is now a place. May it become a place of transformation. Speaking of transformation, I want to take this opportunity on behalf of the Divinity School to publicly thank the artist, Mary Frank, who's responsible for this powerful and evocative image that we've been using for weather reports. It's a painting of hers. Mary has never turned away from grief. She's embraced it and transformed it through her art that speaks to life and death and rebirth. She's capable of transforming women into fish and men into deer looking downward at their four-legged stance. Creation is her medium and action is her protocol, be it with a paintbrush in hand or her solar cooker making dinner on the window sill in her apartment in midtown Manhattan. She's a woman in her eighth decade, engaging with the world. I will tell you that her devotion to Solar Cookers International counters climate changes with renewable energy while helping women worldwide cut their labor in half. It's more than inspiring. It's a model for all of us. Again, each of us holds a Tessera, a piece of the mosaic that is ours, the mosaic of social and ecological justice and transformation. Something to notice in Mary's painting just quickly. There is a sprig of fern in the hand of the human. A fern, as we know, is one of the oldest life forms on the planet whose ancestors appear on earth for over 300 million years. Ferns dominated the land before the rise of flowering plants. Ferns understand adaptation and survival. I believe they will survive us. I find that a comforting thought. I want to believe in the origin story, writes Victoria Chang. I want to believe that we all want to know how we came to be and who we came from. Maybe, she writes, all our memories are tied to the memories of others. Tonight, Victoria Chang is asking us to think about the relationship between memory and grief. And this feels like an arc in our series of weather reports, because the one thing, the one aspect that all of these weather reports have had in common, be it fire or loved ones or the loss of land or species is grief, climate grief. In reading her last two books, Obit and Dear Memory, Letters on Rioting, Silence and Grief, which I love, I kept thinking about how does the grief of those we love inform our grief of a changing planet, where we find ourselves not only in the midst of the ex- sixth extinction, but with the severe loss of biodiversity, including the land itself? I've been thinking of a friend of mine, Becky DeWay, who's Cajun. She lives in Galeano, Louisiana. They lost their home, they lost everything but their lives to Hurricane Ida in August. The reality of Becky and her husband, Earl, of rebuilding for the third time as they did after Hurricane Katrina, and then again after Hurricane Betsy was overwhelming. But the frequency and unpredictability of more extreme storms, she and her husband are now seriously contemplating accepting the government buyout of the land they've lived on all of their lives as Cajun people in the bayous. The land we were raised on is gone, Becky told me. We hardly recognize it anymore. She's referring to the coastal erosion, which is the equivalent of a loss of a football field of land every hour. Yes, Louisiana, according to the U.S. Geological Survey, is losing a football field of land every hour to the ocean. Land collapsing into the ocean. Who's holding the grief there? We don't have the buffers we used to, Becky DeWay said. This is one story in an anthology of thousands, and it has everything to do with our identities. If I'm not living on this land, asked Becky DeWay, am I still Cajun? The shape of memory is a tree, writes Victoria. The trees have witnessed all the wars. What is a tree but persistent and secret? Perhaps our individual and collective griefs are persistent and secret. Perhaps this is part of our problem, the silencing of our grief, the masks of denial, prejudice and racism, love and loss. So much of Victoria Chain's work has to do with what is seen and unseen. As a person of color, she has experienced both the violence of being seen and the loneliness of being unseen. What is visible and invisible, haunts, informs, and enlivens her work. Victoria Chang's presence tonight is a gift. She's an artist, a creator, a celebrated poet of five collections of poetry. Each book is a visual form as well as a poetic form. Most recently, Obit, published by Copper Canyon Press, received the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, the Annisfield Wolf Book Award, and the Pan Volker Award, and was long listed for the National Book Award. Her other books include Barbie Chang, The Boss, Salvinia, Molesta, and Circle. She's the editor of Asian American Poetry, The Next Generation, and Two Children's Books. Chang earned her BA in Asian Studies from the University of Michigan, an MA in Asian Studies from Harvard University, an MBA from Stanford University, and an MFA from the Warren Wilson MFA Program for Writers, and in 2017, she was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship. Her most recent book published this month on October 12th, Dear Memory, was given starred reviews by both Kirkus and Publishers Weekly, who writes, quote, a moving consideration of ancestry and loss. Chang's prose is short, sharp and strong. Memory is the exit wound of joy, she writes. And her creativity shines in her incorporation of the collage-like visual elements which add depth," unquote. Victoria Chang is a writer of depth. Welcome, Victoria. It's an honor to be in conversation with you tonight.
1: Thank you so much. And that was really generous and kind, and it's such a pleasure to be here. I've just been looking forward to this conversation for so
0: long. I will tell the audience we've never met personally, but I just have, we need this conversation in terms of what the weather reports are because as I said I think the one common denominator has been grief and as you know Obit touched me deeply and I'm still haunted and stirred by your lines in particular the dead are an image of wind and when they comb their hair our trees rustle Mm -hmm. that's one of those lines where you just experience the world differently Um, so I thank Thank you for that. Victoria, what's the weather report where you are right now? (laughs)
1: Literally, (laughs) metaphorically, Metaphorically, um, I think the weather report in Los Angeles where I'm dialing in from literally and metaphorically is tenuous. It's one of um, transition and change. And I think that uh, there's a lot happening in Los Angeles right now. And um yeah, I mean I was just reading the LA Times report is you know, the LA Times uh newspaper this morning and thinking thinking about our unhoused and also thinking about climate and a lot of things. So I think I think we're in transition. That's what, I think that would I would say that's the what the report
0: tenuous and in transition that that feels um familiar to me also in the desert. The epigram in Obit begins with this line from Shakespeare, give sorrow words, the grief that does not speak. So much of what you talk about is silence. Um, and I'm wondering if you can just describe for our listeners how Obit came to be, both the
1: words and the silences inside. hmm Yeah, so my mother um, had a a pretty terrible disease, it's called pulmonary fibrosis. And it's when your lungs uh, gradually harden and you suffocate to death. And so she's been, she was ill for a long time. It's hard to remember to talk about her in past tense, but, um, and then she passed away in 2015 after my father had a stroke maybe 15 years ago now, maybe not quite, maybe 13 years ago. Um, and so he, he lost his language and struggled, uh, and struggles with aphasia. He's still around, but the, the burden of being a caretaker or the gift or or slash burden of being a caretaker, I think, um, led to my mom's demise. And so the book, um, came actually came about, uh, with me avoiding wanting to write the traditional elegy. It's been done before, done better than I could ever do it. Um, in ways that weren't maybe familiar to me. So I resisted that whole enterprise um, or practice, I should say. And then I heard on NPR, they're talking about a documentary on the um, obit, on obituary writers and something clicked. And I went home and thought, gosh, everything, when someone you love dies, everything seems like it dies in some ways. And I started writing, these small um, palms that look like obituaries. And the first one I wrote was called The Bees. Uh, the Bees died in something. I think I changed the beginning, but oh, I happened to open it to that page by accident. The Bees, 268 million years old from the Philippines, passed away on April 26, 22, in Nome, Alaska. And somehow that, that sort of act of just writing that little beginning of, a, of an obituary um, led me to be able to write through my grief, or about my grief, or askew, I suppose, um, just sort of getting some of those emotions on paper.
0: I mean, I loved how in the gesture of writing these columns, these obits, it becomes a book about life. And, you know, your first one in the published book um, is an obituary for your father's frontal lobe after his stroke it moves through to a blue dress, an obituary for appetite, for optimism. And in the end, America. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm interested in how you intersperse throughout these tankas, which are poems for your children. Can you talk about that decision and what a tanka
1: is? Sure, yeah, and so yeah, I wrote these these obituary-shaped poems, which I'll I'll show you visually in a, in a little bit, um, maybe in over a two-week period. So they just sort kind of all came out Rilkean-like, you know, in that short period of time. And um, not at all to compare myself to the great poet Wilka, but it was a very similar process. And um, at some point I stopped writing those and I started, I think writers and people who make things sometimes think, oh, that's, I've forgotten how to do something if you haven't done it for a while. And so I started writing some formal poems, sonnets, sestinas, cantums, um, you know, huzzles, uh, just to see if I could write anymore. And I landed on these tankas, which are syllabic forms, very much like a haiku, which is, you know, five, seven, five syllables, obviously in English syllables. And the the Tankas 57577, and I just wrote a bunch of them and they were um, to, to children. And my my poet friend told me, you know, you should move these all throughout the, the book. And so they became a kind of conversation between loss and life. Um, and then it sort of reshaped how I thought about loss, you know, in some ways about grieving, you know, grieving I thought was a way to sort of commemorate the dead in some ways. Um, or to see if I could explain what grief was. And then as time went on, I realized grieving is actually a form of of love is really what it is. And um, I think the Tonka has helped me to sort of see that relationship between helping someone die and then helping someone grow. I also loved the truth of it,
0: that in the middle of our grief, as you say, or in the middle of caretaking for the dying, there's also simultaneously life going on and Mm -hmm. that's what that felt um those waves of movement between the living and the dying the mundane and the profound Um, and i really appreciated that both as a form as well as the truth right i i have to ask you about one poem um one obituary it was about the ocean Mm. would you mind reading that one it's on page
1: 100 sure The Ocean. Died on August twenty-first, 2017, when I didn't jump from the ship. Instead, I dragged the door shut and pulled up the safety latch. The water in my body wanted to pour into the ocean, and I imagined myself being washed by the water, my body separating into the droplets it always was. I could feel the salt on my neck for days. A woman I once knew leapt out of a window to her death. The difference was she was being chased. Some scientists say the ocean is warming. Some say the ocean has hypoxic areas with no oxygen. Even water has hierarchy. A child's death is worse than a woman's death unless the woman who died was the mother of the child and the only parent. If the woman who died was the mother of an adult, it is merely a part of life. If both mother and daughter die together, it is a shame. If a whole family dies, it is a catastrophe. What will we call a whole ocean's death? Peace.
0: Thank you. There's such a powerful logic there. And those last two lines, what will we call a whole ocean's death? Peace. Can you talk about that? It has stayed with me for months.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's an acknowledgement of our complicity in the, the Earth's harm. And once we're gone, I think the ocean can be at peace because we're no longer here to destroy our planet. So I think that's probably what I was thinking <laughs> uh, when I wrote it.
0: It's that same feeling I had with the ferns, you know, that they will survive us.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I appreciate that. That to me is the yeah. poet's gift of the alarm of death followed by peace, which is also mm-hmm. a logic. Um, right. But thank you and, for- and- Really, yeah, yeah. And I was
1: thinking too like um now that I'm thinking about it, you know like and I say ocean's death. So I mean it's interesting because you know it it's like there's a connection between us and the ocean, you know. So when we're not around anymore is an ocean even an ocean anymore. So maybe there's uh, some sort of um uh, naming, too, and the relationship between, you know, signifier and the sign- signified. And um, and I think I was thinking the ocean would still be around, but because we are no longer around, and therefore is it alive anymore? That makes sense. A little complicated. I know poets do that, so but I'm not also, even sure what it means. <laughs> I also love that peace is
0: another form of silence
1: mm-hmm.
0: in in some way. So- Absolutely. I think for our audience, you can begin to see the, the layering, um, how one sentence follows another and you're left in many ways. I felt your last sentences of every obit was a cone, almost like Mm -hmm. a cone. Um, and it, it invited stillness to contemplate that.
1: Mm -hmm. Will you read to us? Sure. (laughs) I'd be happy to, I'm going to share my screen. Um, so that, that, uh, Maybe if you um, are a visual learner, or um, if you can't see, you can, uh, or if you can't sort of hear or anything you can see, and I'll be reading as well, so you can also hear me. So um, I'll go ahead and do that now. And then I'm gonna read from another book as well, the one that just came out a little while ago, and it has some visual elements. So this is why I made these slides, mostly to show you the visual elements from the, the um, the other book. So these are some poems and that are from obit. And as I mentioned earlier, um, my dad has stroke, and he runs through a lot of these poems. And my my mother passed away. And I'll just read a few few of these, and then I'll move to the the other one. And they're all shaped like little little obituaries. That. And this one's called music. Music died on August 7, 2015. I made a video with old pictures and music for the funeral. I picked Hallelujah in acapella because they weren't really singing, but actually crying. When my children came into the room, I pretended I was writing. Instead, I looked at my mother's old photos, the fabric patterns on all her shirts, the way she held her hands together at the front of her body. In each picture, the small brown purse that now sits under my desk. At the funeral, my brother-in-law kept turning down the music. When he wasn't looking, I turned the music up because I wanted these people to feel what I felt. When I wasn't looking, he turned it down again. At the end of the day, someone took the monitor and speakers away, but the music was still there. This was my first understanding of grief. This one is called My Mother's Teeth and she had dentures. um, And so my whole life, I I just remember uh, a lot of glasses in bathrooms and things with teeth fizzing all the time. And uh, after she died, I realized that she had more than one pair of dentures. My mother's teeth died twice, once in 1965, all pulled out from gum disease. Once again, on August 3rd, 2015, The fake teeth sit in a box in the garage. When she died, I touched them, smelled them, thought I heard a whimper. I shoved the teeth into my mouth, but having two sets of teeth only made me hungrier. When my mother died, I saw myself in the mirror, her words around my mouth like powder from a donut. Her last words were in English. She asked for Sprite. I wonder whether her last thought was in Chinese. I wonder what her last thought was. I used to think that a dead person's words die with them. Now I know that they scatter, looking for meaning to attach to, like a scent. My mother used to collect orange blossoms in a small, shallow bowl. I passed the tree each spring. I always knew that grief was something I could smell, but I didn't know that it's not actually a noun, but a verb, that it moves. And I'll read this little tanka here that we were just talking about. um, And I put two on each page and I'll just read these two. Sometimes all I have are words and to write them means they're no longer prayers but are now animals. Other people can hunt them. You don't need a thing from me. You already have everything you need. The moon, a wound on the lake, our footprints to not follow. And maybe I'll read um, one, one more from this book and then I'll move to the other book. Maybe I'll read this one. Actually, maybe I'll read this one. I don't know if you could see that one. That one's called The Clock. And um, yeah, I referenced to listening to the radio on this one, but I explain it kind of up front. The clock died on June 24th, 2009, and it was untimely. How many times my father has failed the clock test. Once I heard a scientist with Alzheimer's on the radio trying to figure out why he could no longer draw a clock. It had to do with the superposition of three types. The hours are by one to 12, the minutes where one no longer represents one, but five and a two now represents 10, then the second hand that measures one to 60. I sat at the stoplight and thought of the clock, its perfect circle, and its superpositions, all the layers of complication on a plane of thought. Yet the healthy read the clock in one single instant without a second thought. I think about my father and his lack of first thoughts how every thought is a second or third or fourth thought, unable to locate the first, most important thought. I wonder about the man on the radio and how far his brain has degenerated since. Marvel at how far our brains allow language to wander without looking back but knowing where the peer is. If you unfold an origami swan and flatten the paper, is the paper sad because it has seen the shape of the swan? Or does it aspire toward flatness, a life without creases? My father is the paper. He remembers the swan, but can't name it. He no longer knows the paper swan represents the animal swan. His brain is the water the animal swan once swam in, holds everything. But when thawed, all the fish disappear. Most of the words we say have something to do with fish. And when they're gone, they're gone. And uh, maybe at the end I'll read the America obituary as well. Um, but I'm going to move to oh, I have one here. Um, this book, which is called Dear Memory, and it came out just a couple weeks ago. And um, to give you just a two second background, I uh, my friend actually describes Dear Memory as a branch from the tree of obit that has sort of um, grown into its own tree. And I, I love saying that because I think that's true when I think about it I I didn't want to write about my mother's passing anymore I was done um but then I had to go clean out a facility uh, a, a sort of a storage facility and she was quite the the hoarder and I had delayed doing this for a long time mostly because I was lazy not because I was trying to avoid you know things but I was I, I just hate cleaning and I found all these boxes and um there are all these photos and documents and all sorts of things. And I ended up walking out of that storage facility with so many questions. And we grew up in a family where, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of information that was told to us. It was a family that was, I think, very much centered in silence. And um, so I, I I, started thinking about my mother a lot more and having all these questions. And that's why I wrote her. I do, what writer, I do what a writer does, which is we start writing, but I wrote my mother a letter. So I'll read the first one. It's just a little bit here. I'll read you the whole thing, which is not a, a ton longer, but I don't have it all here. Dear Mother, I have so many questions. What city were you born in? What was your American birthday, your Chinese birthday? What did your mother do? What did your grandmother do? Who was your father, grandfather? It's too late now, but I would like to know. I would like to know why your mother followed Chiang Kai-shek taking you and your six or seven siblings across China to Taiwan. I would like to know what was said in the planning meeting. I would like to know who was in that meeting, where that meeting took place. I would like to know the people who were left behind. I would like to know if there are other people who look like me. I would like to know if you took a train, if you walked, if you had pockets in your dress, if you wore pants, if your hand was in a fist, if you held a small stone, if you thought the trees were black or green at night, if it was cold enough to see your breath, to sting your fingers. I would like to know who you spoke to along the way, if you had some preserved salty plums, which we both love, in your pocket. I would like to know if you carried a bag, if you had a book in your bag, where you got your food for the trip. While I never knew your mother, father, or your siblings, I would like to have known your father, to know what his voice sounded like, if it was brittle or pale, if it was blue or red, to know the sound he made when he swallowed food. I would like to know if your mother was afraid. During college, I spent several weeks with her in Taiwan. She bought me baozi or buns every morning, the bao that steamed in small plastic bags with no ties, and sweet doujiang tofu milk, always too hot for me to drink. She sat there and watched me eat, complained to me about your brother's wife, complained of being sick and how no one would help her. Do you know how long it took me to figure out how to call an ambulance? And then when they came, she refused to go. I still remember how the two men stared at me as if I could move a country. Listen, it's the wind. That's the same wind from your countries. Sometimes, if I listen closely at night, I can hear you drop a small bag at the door. I hear the sound of the bow touching the ground and the wind trying to open the bag. But when I open the door, there's nothing there. Just the same wind, thousands of years old. Happy birthday, wind. Happy birthday, mother. April 6, 1940. I know this now. All the nurses, doctors, and morticians asked me, so I memorized it your American birthday, April 6th, 1940, I said again and again, as if I had known this my whole life. So I wrote that one and then I wrote another one and then another one to my grandmother, to my grandfather, to silence, to the body, to all these teachers. And um, the book ended up being kind of not, it wasn't a book obviously, it became uh, just sort of an exploration of identity Um, memory making, um, all sorts of things. Um, At some point I put some photos in here and started collaging and messing around with photos and I wrote some poems on these photos. I ended up just ripping out some slips of paper instead of writing them on the photos or doing anything. I'll just show you one. And I'm, again, I'm not a visual artist but I like to play and experiment in, in all sorts of mediums. This one um, is a photo, that's me in the in the white and that's my mother and my sister. I hear the phone ringing, but I can't answer it. It is silence calling. And um, also at some point I found, uh, I remembered actually that I had interviewed my mother one time when she had um, received a letter from a long lost cousin. So obviously um, people separate families by for Kate or sometimes um, I don't know what triplicate or I don't know, they, they move bifurcates only word I can think of. So half of my mother's family stayed in China and the other half left, um, during the the civil war and went to Taiwan. And that obviously changes the futures of everyone. And her cousin had found her and written a letter and it was, um, you know, very sort of a clinical letter with occasional, um, little, I guess, punctures of emotion and, I asked her if I could record her transcribing this letter. And I also took the opportunity to ask her all sorts of questions, which she reluctantly answered. And I remembered I had this recording and it took me a couple years to find it. So I'll just read you maybe a couple of these, but this is just the letter transcribed. Me, have you heard from your relatives in China? Mother, I just found my cousin. She's two years younger than me. She just sent me a letter. She's had a very hard life. She has three daughters. And then she translates this letter. 1950, cousin and family moved to Huape and had to learn new thoughts. 1950 to 59, every two to three days, they had to participate in new movements to suppress the revolution and to fight against the Americans. They had to take all of their pots and metal doors and burn them to make steel. But moving away from farming led to starvation and famine. I'll just read one more. 1959 to 61. Natural disasters caused people to starve to death. People had no meat, no food. We had to participate in more movements. We had food coupons to eat. It took 10 years for things to improve. Suffering in the stomach was okay, but the mental suffering was what was unbearable." And um, I, you know, I transcribed the rest of it, but it's sort of mimics history. And I was an Asian studies major in, in uh, college, and so it was interesting to read about the um, to hear about the, the, the personal stories behind some of the things I learned about in, in class. Here's another one. Um, I think that's my great grandmother in the middle. I only guess because she looks like us and my mother is above her. And I think those are all my mother's siblings. And I think there are maybe one, two, three, four, five, maybe one or two missing um, that maybe weren't born yet. Once you had to stand behind your grandmother who left a country, each of your feet, lifted off the land onto the boat like nightingales. I imagine the night sky, you below deck, light coming from two moons, but only half of your face lit up. You stood still as the moons rearranged themselves. During the switch, language was lost at sea. When language belongs to no one, a door opens. And I was pretty um, set on not gluing these to the page. I really wanted them to feel like they were barely holding on. And then um, I found other things. So I I was just goofing around a little bit when I found these um, really funny letters, funny sort of sad. My dad worked at Ford Motor Company his whole career and he had perfect attendance for many, many years. And I don't know what about that just made me chuckle but then I looked at the dates and realized that he was working really hard while I was, you know, being thinking about myself and doing, doing what kids do. And so um, I wrote a poem and I put a little indentation on a the card um, there to sort of mimic his finger. And I'll just read this to you. Was this your first job? Look at the window behind you as if leaving a country was all perspective and light. I wonder what is in your hand it's so thin and small, it must be my home. And, and I was you know playing around with other things and maybe I'll just end by reading this um, this obituary poem in, from the other book that is the penultimate poem in the book and it uh, references the Marjory Stoneman shooting in Florida. America died on February 14, 2018 and my dead mother doesn't know. Since her death, America has died a series of small deaths, each one less precise than the next. My tears are now shaped like hooks, but my heart is damp still. If it is lucky, it is in the middle of its beats. The unlucky dead children hold telegrams they must hand to a woman at a desk. The woman will collect their belongings in shadows. My dead mother asks each of these children, if they know me, have seen me, how tall my children are now. They will tell her that they once lived in Florida, not California. She will see the child with a hole in his head. She will blow the dreams out of the hole like dust. I used to think death was a kind of anesthesia. Now I imagine long lines, my mother taking in all the children, I imagine her touching their hair, how she might tickle their knees to make them laugh. The dead hold the other half of our ticket. The dead are an image of wind. And when they comb their hair, our trees rustle. Thank you. It's such a gift to hear you read, Victoria. Oh, thank you. It's such a pleasure.
0: In this last book, Dear Memory, you talk about the relationship between grief and memory. And then I was thinking, or is it memory and grief? Does it matter what order it is? What are your thoughts?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this book is really interesting because I never really thought about writing it as, as a, as a book. And, um, and it got me thinking about how remembering and and remembrances and the act of remembering is a form of, of another form of, of grieving. Um, and, and I think that uh, for me, they're one and of the same. So they sort of tangle together. And so one doesn't necessarily come before the other, they just sort of intermix, you know, the way water kind of just moves within itself. And so I think that That's kind of how I ended up thinking about it. You made me think about
0: grief. You know, does it belong to the past or does it belong to the future? You know, Mm -hmm. what we will grieve by not having our mothers with us, Mm -hmm. um, certain species that no longer will be here. Or is grief in the present? You know, is grief like pain where... I don't know. I just,
1: or is grief always with us? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think we live in a culture uh, uh, that is very capitalist and therefore requires us to some extent to fix things, to fix ourselves. Um, And I think grief is just one of the the things that our culture tries to fix, and I think we sort of fixate—to pun intended—on the wrong things to fix. You know, I think that something like grief is not something that really needs to be fixed. It's um, and it can't really be fixed. I think, I think it just is, and I think that um, we learn to live in it and amongst it and it's nothing to go through there's really no light at the end of the tunnel I mean you think of all these you know cliches that we have where we use in our culture and um, that's something that I've had to come to terms with is that it won't end and it shouldn't have to end because my mother is still dead and so I don't really think that I feel like I need to Get over anything. Um, Rather, I, I now live in that grief, and I think we live in all kinds of griefs, just as we live in all kinds of joys, and the two are very closely intertwined—grief and joy. I think without grief, we couldn't have joy because we wouldn't understand what joy is without grief or pain. And so um, that's sort of you know, like I've, I've had to come to peace with that versus always trying to, to work through things. You know, one of the lines you write, and maybe
0: for many of us, you say, memory is shaped by motion, movement, and migration, imagination. And to me, that could also be a definition of, of grief. Grief okay. is shaped by motion, movement, and migration, imagination, that okay. we move with grief. That's something that I came away from a bit with, and it was okay. strengthened in this narrative you know, Mm -hmm. this, these letters, you know, one of the things I was wondering is how have you come to know or understand grief from the writing of it versus slash and the living of it? Mm -hmm. I
1: think for a writer, we just write to to just live. I mean, I think for writers um, writing is oxygen, you know, um, I can't imagine not doing that in my life at all. I mean, that, I think I, then I would basically be ceased. I wouldn't be living anymore in many ways. I would be just, um, I might may, may be here in body, but I'm not really here. And so I think for writers, that's sort of how we navigate the world. Um, and for a lot of these, these recent books, at least, uh, was just kind of, thinking about, you know, if I were sitting across from you at a table um, at a restaurant, could I explain to you, Terry, what I was feeling and could language get, could language actually accomplish that or is are these things definable? Ultimately, I think they're not really definable and they're always moving, like you were saying, and shape-shifting and and churning and uh, morphing and unpenetrating pinnable downable—I guess—or not able to be pinned down—is probably a better way to say it. But through this process, I felt like at least writing obit, those poems. Um, if I could get a foot away, an inch away, a centimeter away, to being using language as a way to articulate those feelings, knowing that there would be that slippage, I think I really enjoyed that process of creating, and that's you know the medium for a writer. It's, it's, it's little, little letters and little words um, and how we put them together in different combinations and collisions. That's what we do you know, for a painter. It's, it's you know, some, uh, something else, oil or acrylic, you know, um, oil paints, but for, for a writer, it's words. And so I think that was always fun for me as a writer to try and see if it's even possible to, um, to use words to express some really profoundly sad and deep grief.
0: I mean, one of the things I was thinking about when I was writing about my mother's death mm-hmm. in a book called Refuge, while I was writing, she was still with me. And I, if I'm honest, Victoria, I don't think I really began to grieve until after I was done with that book, mm-hmm. because then I no longer had access to her in that same way.
1: Did you experience anything like that? Absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, I think that's why I kept writing. (laughs) And I wrote another book because I, you know, the the Dear Memory book was very much so, um, boy, when you're an immigrant's child and you grow up in a culture of silence, what happens when the only connection you have left to your entire history is now gone? In many ways, what that means is you are now dead and your own history is has evaporated and vanished but you didn't know that you had that hole in you until that body the physical body of my mother was gone because she held all of those secrets all that knowledge and so there was just another form of grieving a deeper layer of grieving and um you know, I'm sure that you knock on wood, you know, my, my dad is still around. I'm sure that I'll feel a different kind of grieving when he, um, you know, leaves the the earth as well. And I think that you just can't know um, what you'll feel until those things happen. And, um, and even after you write these books, it's not as if anything is resolved, or there's any, um, underst- greater understanding I mean if, the, if anything that comes out of the process of making and creating is that you come out of it with more questions and I think that's the beauty of, of the process of making is that you're not really trying to answer anything you know um, and I think that that's what makes us coming back to art making as humans and um, why it continues to be a big part of our our lives and our cultures around the world So here's a question for you. And I rarely speak about this in
0: public. For obvious reasons, but you and I both lost our mothers early on in our life as writers. And I often wonder what would my voice be had I not lost my mother? And was not worth, it? I mean, you know, I mean, the death of my mother gave me my voice in many ways because I felt free. If my mother had lived, I don't think I would be able to have been as honest as I was after she was gone in many ways. And I'm wondering if that has haunted you as it's haunted me of the price of our voice was yes. the loss of our mothers.
1: I think, um, I think about that all the time. And I actually think I just thought about that recently. Um, it, it, even again, you know, I think, I think that, I, and I just said this recently, I was like, boy, it is awful strange that my mother had to die for me to become the artist that I am today and what a terrible thing i've done in <laughs> that i've i've um i've basically used her death and my own grieving in for for art's sake um and i feel terrible about that and it's a huge cost i'd have her back in a second
0: or is it a, for art's sake or your own survival both in, yeah create- I mean, our mothers created us, you know, certainly with our fathers. But then after their death, we recreated them. Mm -hmm. And I wonder um, if there is some kind of organic process in that that has to do with memory and grief Mm -hmm. and the making even of a reconstructed beloved.
1: Yeah. No, I think... And I talk about this in Dear Memory too, um, and I mean, I, I just suddenly remembered I I loved your book, um, the Bird Book. You know, when women when women were birds, and it like I feel like there's such a connection between um, some of the things that we're talking about in your books, in my books, but in in Dear Memory, you know, I talk I talk a lot about that kind of that that sort of reconstruction or construction of identity through um through the, the loss of someone else and it's almost like i mean i hate to use the cliche but it's sort of like a you know a bird kind of coming out of um, a wreckage and becoming and sort of flying out of that wreckage right and i think um i think that happens especially for me when you know, mother passes away, there's something about that connection between a mother and a daughter that feels so intensely important and intimate, uh, that sometimes I wonder if I was ever really cut away from that cord, and that connection is so powerful, and so um, I think I couldn't have become the writer or the artist that I am um, if she had, lived you know until she was 95 or something like that I would have been a different kind of writer and it would have been you know it would have been fine Um, but but you know her passing was transformative to me as an artist in ways that are very bizarre to think about and I do think about that all the time too you know
0: you solved a puzzle for me in (laughs) these words maybe silence well, first of all, you talk about how silence has a heartbeat Mm
1: -hmm. so that
0: silence is alive. And then I think of your line, I yelled back at you in silence. And then maybe silence is its own language. Maybe the unspoken can lead to the wildest, widest imagination. Maybe it's the most open text, the loudest form of speaking we have. And Victoria, it made me go back to my mother's journals you know my mother left me all her journals and yeah. all her journals were blank mm-hmm. was that her heartbeat was that yelling back through her silence was that the widest imagination the most open text
1: mm-hmm.
0: and i couldn't have i couldn't have said those words but you said them to me and then i was so moved when the last line in your book is blank paper everywhere with a red threaded needle mm-hmm. so you know I want to thank you for that. And then I'm thinking, as we're talking about our mother, you know, what about the mother earth? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And I wrote in the margins of dear memory, and I felt like it was a transgression because it's such a beautiful book. And I wrote all over it, (laughs) but it was just being in dialogue with you. But, um, what role does identity play in the climate crisis? How might the climate of our own identities be shifting and changing? Who are we becoming at this moment in time? And is there a we or is it
1: only I? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think those are really great questions and they're changing every single day. And every every day I read something that that sort of makes it makes my bones shiver. You know, I think about something um, like even just what you mentioned in terms of the football fields falling into the ocean. You know, I I I, I read something every day related to the climate or environment, and I have to say that um, it it often feels so overwhelming and trying to figure out what one's individual role is in. In trying to figure this out is really hard and overwhelming, and so I mean, I, I do think there's an individual in the climate, the relationship to climate, but I also think there is a we. So I think that's a part of what what we're facing as a, you know, as as the people that are on this earth right now is, um, you know, what do we do as a collective? What do we do as individuals? Um, how do we not put all of it onto the next generations? Yet we also, how do we stoke them to, to make some real change? And these are questions of the moment that have. You know, I think they're really important. Um, so I, I do think there has to be an I and there has to be a we. And I think that we're, you know, I think we're we're egotistical. And so the I needs to be stoked in some way to turn into a we. Um, but yeah, I think about that all the time. So I'm glad you wrote those notes. in. The- <laughs> I,
0: I think about with identities, you know, mm-hmm. the line that you wrote in some ways being born Chinese in America means not being born at all. You know, or I remember a conversation I had with a beloved student of mine when she said, Terry, my we is not your we. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, with these conversations around identity, with all of the different experiences, I just, I keep wondering, where do we find our humanity at this time when it is needed in order to face um, the death of our mother? Right. Earth. And not that I'm asking for answers, but but these are some of the questions that your writing provoked in me with mm-hmm. such beautiful lines. I have rain in my eyes and I can no longer see. My eyelids are now umbrellas. I mean, a line like that I will live on, you know, mm-hmm. or all of my poems smell like smoke. Um, or I pick up the pencil again, try and describe the way the sky knows how to turn. From blue to black and then blue again. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I mean, to me, this is what I'm hungry for, not cheap hope, but a sentence like that. I pick up the pencil again, try and describe the way the sky knows how to turn from blue to black and then blue again. The notion of fragments. You know, I love that image of your mother with all the fragments around her. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You know, in in the making of that,
1: where does one find wholeness? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think um, I did a reading with one of my friends, the poet Rick Barrett, and he he said something that made me think about fragments and wholeness. But he was talking about silence, and he said this book, in many ways, seems like it's a journey. Of, you go, the speaker goes their journey of, of silence, where you come. At it sort of at the beginning thinking silence is kind of this thing that you're trying to fill. And, and by the end of the book, you realize silence is um, this beautiful thing that doesn't need to be filled. And I think that's true with fragments and the whole as well. I mean, I think our impulse with fragments is to put the pieces together. Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe the fragments are a beautiful thing within itself. And maybe thinking about the we and the collective, instead of thinking of it as sort of one large unit, maybe we think of it as a series of smaller units, you know, mm-hmm. that are all nodes, you know, somehow networked in some ways that that altogether, you know, could build a stronger whole, but it's not connected in the same way that maybe it used to be connected. Um, and I'm really just, thinking aloud here but But maybe that's the decolonization Mm -hmm. that is
0: necessary you know i noticed so many times in i love how kundra talks about a writer's vocabulary that as writers we use the same words over and over again and i was noticing how many times country comes up Mm -hmm. in your work you know maybe that's part of of a new language that you're advocating for you know, that the fragmentation that is its own beauty.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. That takes
0: out of country as well as acknowledgement of the countries we come from or that we've mm -hmm. been separated from.
1: That's right. Yeah. And I am a whole human in some ways um, that's built out of fragments and silence and um, not and other people's trauma that then was passed on to me through intergenerational trauma and things like that. And it is, but I'm not any less than, you know, whereas I think that takes a lifetime to come to that realization of feeling as if, oh, the parts are also its own kind of whole. And there's no need to sort of aim for that other hole that other people have over there because their experience is different than mine. So I think it's sort of reframing things or rethinking things and building a self is not, not easy. You know, it can take a lifetime. I always thought this, this whole gig that we have is odd. We spend a whole lifetime acquiring wonderful experiences and stacking images in our brains and um, all this great thinking. And then, and then we die. <laughs> I was like, who designed this, you know, all this knowledge at the end. And so um you know, I think it's kind of a fascinating thing to think about. But in, and it is really uh, a true testament to the journey is more important than wh- where we end, you know, and, and, then, and what we end up with. And so and um, maybe it's the yeah. blank page. I mean, the mm-hmm. older I
0: get, this sounds like a cliche, but the less I know,
1: the That's less right. certain I am. Exactly. Mystery.
0: Yeah, mystery. And, yeah. and happy with that. hmm. That's a ridiculous word, happy, but, and contend is worse, but um, at peace with that, maybe. And yet still the curiosity. I love this um, paragraph of yours. Maybe if I listen closely enough, and I have to say, I think you are such a beautiful writer of listening. "Um, Maybe if I listen closely enough, the stone is a thought. The bell makes a sound without ringing, and I hear children grow. Maybe our histories can never be known maybe curiosity is its own language. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And I was thinking maybe curiosity is the underbelly of grief. You know, Mm -hmm. you're wanting to know the wonder that comes with the death of of a loved one. I know when my my brother, um, his death by suicide, I'm filled with wonder. Mm -hmm. I'm filled with wonder and that curiosity, that that also is a sibling of of grief. Mm-hmm. And then with your children, when you say my children, ch- children, um, this will you read it, the last Tonka? Oh, sure. I, I just think that's so
1: exquisite. My children, children, this poem will not end because I'm trying to end this poem with hope, hope, hope. See how the mouth stays open.
0: I think every person that reads that says it to themselves, Mm. hope, and the mouth is open. Mm -hmm. Um, I just wanna thank you so much for this conversation Um, We could go on and on, and I hope we will. Your books have deepened me. They have energized me. They have brought me to a deeper level of curiosity and understanding about grief. And in a culture called America, if that even exists, the cultures within America, but the dominant culture, the white supremacy culture, does not want us to linger with grief. Mm-hmm. And I think about that. And who benefits if we ignore our grief? Who benefits if we deny grief? Who benefits if we only live on that surface mm-hmm. um, of a closed mouthed hope? Mm-hmm. And the last question I have for you, and then we can end with your sen- a wonderful sentence of yours. This shocked me you ask the question what ought to be so what ought to be
1: mm-hmm. i think it's all the things that you're just talking about you know this this notion this this idea of losing that sense of ownership or entitlement or um, it's, it's a dispersed kind of thinking. It's a new way of thinking. And it's living in silence and art and philosophy and thinking. You know, I think our, our, this culture that we live in doesn't want us to think too much or too hard because when we do that is when we come alive. And I think that it's better for these um, institutions and people to have all of us stay numb and dead so that capitalism can continue to churn along as it does. And, um, And I think we have to stay alive. And how we do that is through music, through art, through poetry, through philosophy, all the things that have been with us since the beginning of time. And we have to keep doing that and encouraging the next generations, you know, to, to read and to think and to study and to question and to live comfortably in that, also that kind of silence, you know? Um, so it's this, yeah, it's an interesting dichotomy of both speaking up and staying silent, but I think it's spiritual silence and speaking up is it, those are two different things, but I think I think that's what ought to be, you know, and and understanding that what ought to be is multifaceted. Mm Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's such an honor to be here with you. I could go on about that as well, but I won't. (laughs) I just know this is ongoing
0: and I can't wait to see you and put my arms around you. Victoria, this sentence now is on my desk. In some ways, we are coming out of silence and creating a new
1: language. Thank Thank you. thank you. Thank you.
0: Sponsor, Harvard Divinity School, the Constellation Project, the Center for the Study of World Religions, Religion and Public Life, Theosophy Tease, the Planetary Health Alliance. Copyright 2021, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.